The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. What the Bible has to say about government, this is a huge topic. We could do a, or at least I could, I could do an easily a six-week series on what the Bible has to say about government. That is not my goal. The goal this morning is just to talk about the main points the Bible has to say about a biblical view of government to help all of us develop a Christian worldview. Uh, the goal is not to be exhaustive and comprehensive on this topic. So just by, I'm going to remind you this of every week because we're doing, you know, it's a one shot on all these issues where there's so much to say. Um, so you're going to walk away maybe with questions still or asking the question, what are the practical implications of that? Or what about this scenario over here? Or what about this exception clause over here? Or what, those are a lot of great questions. We're probably not going to even address most of those today because that's not the goal. This is just biblical political science 101 in 50 minutes or less. So, and there are a couple of points that I really want to emphasize. If you want to do further study, there are some great resources on what the Bible has to say about government. Too many that I can name, but three of my fav- four of my favorites that have been most helpful for me. Easy reads. One is at the book table. One is called Blinded by Might by Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson. That's probably the best. Amazing book. Another one is Why Government Can't Save You by John MacArthur. Great book. Short, to the point. Another one that is a classic. Very helpful. How Should We Then Live by Francis Schaeffer. And then the last one, Understanding the Times. We have two copies in the book cart. Great price. David Noble from Colorado. Amazing book. Wow. So if I don't answer your questions today, I guarantee your answers will be found in those books right there. So let's move on. Let's do it. Let's try to tackle these six main points that I want to raise today about what the Bible has to say about government. And before we start, I do need to say this, that this morning your thinking will be challenged. I guarantee it to one degree or another. Your thinking is going to be challenged. You might even hear stuff, you're thinking, wow, I didn't know that was in the Bible, or is that really in the Bible, or is that really what the Bible is teaching? So your thinking is going to be challenged. That's a good thing. The reason your thinking is going to be challenged, or at least many of you probably your thinking is going to be challenged, is because of the world that you live in and the government that you live under. We do not live under a strictly 100% biblical regime and understanding of how government should work here in the United States of America. And... Certainly the, the six principles I'm going to share with you that should be foremost in your mind when you're thinking about government, you will never, never hear on CNN, NBC, CBS, ABC. It just ain't going to happen. And if you were raised in public education and if you went to a public university, secular university, um, and you took probably you had to take some kind of a, a civics class or political science, I guarantee you, you were not given this information as priorities of how to understand society and the government. So depending upon your background, your education, your experiences, you're probably going to hear some stuff that either you never thought of or are going to challenge your thinking. And like I say, that's a good thing. And the practical application of this sermon and every sermon you ever hear, like I said last week, practical application number one of this sermon is first believe it. That's practical application. Believe it. Believe it insofar as it is biblical. Be a Berean, search the Scripture, and there will be many benefits from that. So that's my precursor to this issue of what does the Bible have to say about government. The next thing I wanted to say was that the church has always struggled for 2,000 years of how to balance a pure biblical view of Christianity and the church and the kingdom of God and the spiritual realm. Balancing that with uh, earthly human government and the authority of government and how do they relate to one another and how do they complement one another and how do they intertwine if they do and work together. That's been a challenge for the church for 2,000 years. Striking a delicate balance, that's very hard to do. And throughout church history, we've gone from one extreme to the other in terms of the Christian attitude towards government, all the way from one extreme to Christians in churches even today, and they've existed all throughout church history. And that view says... The church should have nothing to do with government or politics whatsoever. A Christian should never aspire to run for office. Christians shouldn't even be talking about politics ever in the church or in any context or a Bible study. They shouldn't even be thinking about it. And their rationale is because we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This world is passing away. We have nothing to do with it. 
And so that, that would be the extreme view. Have nothing to do. You know, don't even vote. Don't ever voice your opinion politically. It doesn't matter anyway. Politics doesn't matter and they stick their head in the ground and they don't even want to be aware of what is going on in the world because they don't think it matters politically. So that is one extreme that I would say we need to avoid. And then there's the other extreme that Christians hold and churches hold and that is they get too much involved in politics. And we see that all over the place. That's been true all throughout church history. And it started on a widespread universal scale in 313 A.D., with the conversion of Constantine to Christianity. And then he made this, and he was the king, he was the emperor, and then he made a formal edict for the whole Roman Empire regarding Christianity. And then saying that it was okay to be a Christian, not even just saying okay, but then mandating almost a Christian worldview, Christian beliefs, Christian religion for the entire kingdom, overstepping his bounds, in my opinion, as a civic leader. And ever since then, you've had all kinds of compromises going a little too far from the church's point of view. Church is saying that not only do we need to be involved in politics, that needs to be main of our, one of our main objectives, our main priorities. God put us here to reconstruct secular society, to Christianize society in every domain. We need to Christianize politics. We need to Christianize public education. We need to Christianize entertainment. We need to Christianize and on and on, the news. And on and on it goes. And there are Christians who hold that view. They're trying to reconstruct, Christianize every element and component of society. And they think uh, every Christian, all these uh, government positions should be held by Christians. Uh, and Christians basically need to take over the world. Really a theocracy. And this was the problem in the days of John Calvin in the 1500s, 1536, when he went to Geneva. He was a great man of God and a pastor and a preacher and one of the greatest expositors the church has ever known. But he got caught up into that trap of aspiring too much for politics to try to force Christianity on people. So much so that in 1536 when John Calvin went to Geneva where he ended up staying the rest of his life, when he got there and he affirmed these policies and perpetuated them even more when he got there, here are some of the rules that were going on in this city called Geneva or this place called Geneva that was required of all the citizens there. Uh, the leaders were trying to Christianize the city, the town and every person that lived there. And here were some of their rules. A civil proclamation was issued regulating moral and religious practices from a Christian biblical point of view at a very severe level. All citizens were ordered to attend sermons every Lord's Day. Actually, I kind of like that. But anyway, we shouldn't mandate that from all citizens in our cities. Catholicism was against the law. This is from a civil political point of view. Enforcing this by the local government. This is not right. All the citizens of Geneva were to make an oath saying, quote, to live according to the gospel. End quote. Can't do that. Can't legislate Christianity and being born again. The local government took over church property and control of all local religion. City, the city council decided who was worthy to take communion. On the Lord's Day. The city council. This is the worst one. Cards and dice were forbidden and against the law. Our whole family would go to jail. But anyway. <laughs> that was in 1536. And then we even see it today with prominent churches. There's so many. But I mean, these are men that I respect and like to various degrees or have benefited from. I know they're Christians that I think have gone too far and have been trying to have a political agenda. And it's really futile in the end, like Jerry Falwell's church. It's not just, it's okay to be a part of a political organization. I think that's legit if you have a good one. But I'm talking about the church making a priority of politics, politicizing religion and Christianity and the gospel. So Jerry Falwell lived for that. That was one place where I think he went too far. D. James Kennedy, wonderful man of God, same thing. Their church exists. One of their main purposes is to be involved in politics and transform the United States and get it back to being a Christian nation. That is their stated purpose. Pat Robertson, uh, Rick Warren is taking the purpose-driven philosophy and now he is purposing to make purpose-driven nations, including Uganda, Rwanda, Latin America, which I would say is impossible until Jesus returns. He will make purpose-driven nations. The book of Revelation is clear. So anyway, so that is the balance uh, it's difficult to strike as a Christian. It has been. It's been a challenge for the church throughout the whole year. I guarantee we're not all going to agree on politics here, but I do want to just highlight some biblical truths to at least guide our thinking 
and begin meditating on this and apply it to your own life if you can. And you've got to wrestle with this probably the rest of your life here on earth um, regarding this great truth. So let's go ahead and look at six principles I want to highlight today about what the Bible has to say about government. And the first one, number one, this is the most important, by the way. If this is the only truth you take away today, it's a huge benefit. And number one is that God ordained human government. God ordained human government. God created human government. God ordained human government. Colossians 1.16. I know it's not in your outline, but listen to this. Just listen to Colossians 1.16 talking about God and Jesus, the Creator. All things were created by God. Both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible. Well, what are you talking about, Paul? Whether thrones or dominions. He's talking about authority. Thrones, governmental authorities on heaven and on earth. God created those. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. Every government that exists on planet earth today exists because God created it and it also exists for His purposes. And it's been true all throughout history. God ordained human government. These are the two main passages I want to read follow along. 1 Peter chapter 2. Romans 13. Everything else flows out of these. This is a biblical worldview on government. 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. Start with 1 Peter 2. So keep in mind, Peter lived under the authority of the Roman government, which was a hostile government, which was a pagan government, which was a government that required its citizens to bow the knee to the Caesar recognizing him as, as deity. That's an inherent compromise for a Christian. That's the government that Peter lived under. Yet he says this. Keep in mind that the emperor who executed Peter for being a Christian after 64 A.D. was Nero. So Peter is living under the reign of of a man who is going to murder him as king. And Peter says this about his murder, the king. Verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he's talking to Christians. Beloved, Christians, I urge you, I implore you, I command you as aliens and strangers. You're aliens in this world. You're only here for a short time. You're aliens here because your home is in heaven. Verse 13, submit, comply, obey. It's the great imperative. Submit yourselves to the, for the Lord's sake, for God's sake, for Christ's sake, because you are a Christian. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He is talking about governing authorities is what he's talking about. Whether to a king like Nero who's going to kill me, as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by Him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Why? For such is the will of God. This is the will of God. For Christians to submit to authority, political authority is the will of God. Not to overthrow it. Not to be a rabble-rouser. Not to create civil disobedience. Not to be a vigilante. To submit. To obey. That's the will of God. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, of unbelievers. Act as free men, Christians. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves or literally slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood or love the saints. Fear God. Honor the king. Honor the emperor, literally is what it says. Again, that emperor was a pagan. Christian killer. Today it's not us. It's not honor the king as much as it's honor the president. Honor those who rule in our place. We do have a unique situation in the United States of America because ours is really like the first country, nation, culture in world history where any one of us here could become the king by simply running for office and having a great campaign. That's an amazing thought because that was not true all throughout history. If you weren't the right uh, gender, if you weren't from the right royal line and blood, you never had a chance of becoming king or president. Just It was absolutely historically impossible. So, we do live, live in a unique situation. Um, so anyway, that's just a, a foundational passage from Peter. Submit, obey. Then let's look at Romans 13. This is the Apostle Paul. Again, very similar to Peter, 
here's the Apostle Paul talking about what the Christian attitude towards government should be. And it's not Christian government. It is the ruling government. It is the pagan government. It is the unbelieving, sometimes hostile, sometimes unfair, sometimes compromising government. And yet Paul says the exact same thing as Peter. There's no contradiction. The amazing thing, the Apostle Paul is talking about a government that would execute him, chop off his head with a sword for being a Christian. Romans 13, Paul says this, let every person... This is true of everybody, but especially Christians who profess to know Christ. Let every Christian be in subjection or submission to the governing authority. Submit to the government. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. There it is. There is not a government, there is not a country, a nation, a king, a governor that doesn't exist who is not placed there specifically by God. Whether they're good, bad, or ugly, it doesn't matter. God ultimately, sovereignly put them there. There is no authority except it came from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists political, governmental authority has opposed the ordinance or the command of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. If you break the law, you will suffer the consequences of the law. That's what Paul is saying. They have a right to punish you. Verse 3, For rulers or government... Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority or government intrusion? Then do what is good and you will have the praise from the same. For it, the government, government rulers act as a minister of God. Oh, that's interesting, the terminology. Really? Yeah. The policeman, a minister of God. The soldier, a minister of God. Jeff Plaza, you're a minister of God. I don't know if you knew that. But anyway, he's in the military. Government officials, ministers of God. At least they're supposed to be. They were given that authority by God. It was delegated to them as a stewardship responsibility they are accountable to God the Creator for. Now, they can abuse it, yes, as sinners, but they're still supposed to be serving God with justice according to law. Every single person who serves in a civil and leadership capacity. That's why he calls them ministers. Servants on behalf of God for good. For your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid for... It does not bear the sword for vain. It does not bear the sword in vain or for nothing. In other words, God has allowed and even delegated the authority to execute judgment and even the death penalty to governing authorities. God instituted the death penalty in Genesis chapter 9, yeah, Genesis chapter 9 under the days of Noah, long before the Mosaic Law. So when I hear Christians who are pacifists, hyper-pacifists, and say, well, the Christian thing to do and what Jesus would believe is there's no such thing as capital punishment. That's wrong. That's unloving. That's unchristian. No, it's not. God instituted the death penalty in Genesis chapter 9 for governments, local governments, for those who would murder. As a matter of fact, God instituted the death penalty in Genesis chapter 2 when He told Adam, you eat that tree, you're going to die. That's the death penalty. And it's been in force from God's point of view Ever since, it's even reaffirmed by Jesus in the New Testament. So that it came from God. And when Jesus returns again, and people were bringing up the Jesus pacifist argument, when Jesus returns again in Revelation 19, He's coming out of the sky, King of kings, Lord of lords, not as suffering servant, but to wage war against His enemies. That is the death penalty. So it's a biblical point of view, and that's what Paul is affirming here. God gave them... Governmental authority to bear the sword. For us, many times, it's to bear the gun or whatever it is. Or if you're in New York or wherever, you don't get a gun, you get a billy club or a flashlight or whatever it is. Throw your flashlight on or batteries. They have the right to do that. But anyway, so they have the right to bear the sword. Uh, for it is a minister of God, second time he says that, an avenger who brings wrath or justice upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjective, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake as a Christian. For because of this, you also, Christians, also should pay your taxes. But we should have preached this back in March or April. For rulers are servants of God. Three times he calls government officials servants of God. You might be saying, why? They don't act like it. Well, that's true. Sometimes sinners abuse authority. Happens all the time. That wasn't God's intention. There are some good political officials devoting themselves, or at least they're supposed to be, to the very thing, ensuring justice. Verse 7, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax... Custom to whom custom. I actually hate that that verse is in the Bible. Every time I have to drive to Vallejo to teach my seminary class, I get hit with $4 fee through the bridge toll fee. And I actually get upset about it. And every single time I hand them my cash and there are hundreds of cars just passing through. I'm just thinking that all that money just coming in. 
Where is all that money going here? I thought we were bankrupt in California, but anyway. I give him my money, smile, I drive off and I say, that highway robbery. Literally, highway robbery. This was supposed to be paying for the bridge that was built like 50 years ago. Quit complaining, McManus. Custom to whom? Custom. Bridge toll fee to bridge toll fee. Okay. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That's it. Those are our two foundational passages. Everything else will flow from that. So in light of this great truth, God ordained human government. God created human government. Just some corollary points. And that's letter A. God determines who our political leaders are. Really? Yeah. Well, I thought I voted for so-and-so. Well, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, God is sovereign. It does matter. God took your vote into account. Overruled a lot of other votes. Boom! And raised up that political official, whoever it is, in whatever capacity they are. That's the truth of Daniel 2 we read this morning. Bottom line, God is totally sovereign. He's got a plan for history. It is God who changes the times and the epics of history. He's got a plan for history. It's going somewhere. There's a culmination. There's an exclamation point. There's fulfillment. The book of Revelation tells us what it is. And to get there, He removes kings and establishes kings as He wills. It's the sovereignty of God. He determines who our political leaders are ultimately. Well, I thought we determined who they are. This is a democracy. I thought we vote and it really makes a difference. Yeah, it does. At the same time, God determines it. So we determine it and God determines it. How does that work? I don't know. It's a mystery. You've got to believe it by faith. B, God uses all political leaders for His purpose. Even the good ones, the bad ones, and the ugly ones. I already told you that. He uses all political leaders for His purpose. We saw this last week, Romans 9.17, where God specifically said, I raised up Pharaoh. In other words, I made Pharaoh king. Pharaoh was a lousy king. He was a brutal king. He was a murderous thug. How did he get to be king? God said, I raised him up to be king. Romans 9.17, God said, quote, I raised you up, Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power in you. What power? The power of the Exodus. The power of the Red Sea. The power that God is creator overall, ultimately. And Pharaoh's power was a drop in the bucket or less than that in comparison to Almighty God. God uses all political leaders for His purpose. Letter C, God created government to maintain order. To maintain order for society. To maintain civil order. To maintain public order. Like roads, create roads and make sure that everybody's driving on the right side of the road so we don't have a whole bunch of crashes and streetlights and all that stuff. Giving public civil order to humanity. That was by God's design. So we need that. Order, Romans 13, 1. We need that order from an external force because we are finite and we are sinful and we are selfish. We need God's help. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those who exist are established by God. He wants to maintain order. Uh, many theologians believe that God formally instituted government as we know it in Genesis chapter 9 with Noah when he got off of the ark. And if you read Genesis 9, there are implications of that. There are new things there. There are new decrees that God gave. He didn't give to Adam and Eve. Like the death penalty, for example. Letter D, God created government to punish sinners and restrain evil. So God has given us, you know, we are sinners. So we need to be restrained to keep order and to protect other people and to bring about justice. So God has given internal restraints to help restrain our evil so that we don't hurt other people so we can preserve order in society. And those internal restraints are conscience. Every human being has a conscience. That is by God's design. That is internal governance. And if you become a Christian, God gives you another internal governance for the indwelling Holy Spirit who also helps restrain evil in your life even more. So there are internal restraints to preserve order. And then there are external restraints God Gave, and that is government. And it is the, for the purpose of punishing sinners and restraining evil. We saw this in Romans 13 already and in 1 Peter 2, or in Romans 13 it says, For rulers, authority figures, even concluding police officers, they are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Evil people, sinners, lawbreakers should be afraid of the policeman when they see him. Because that's what they're for. They are ministers of God. To do what? To be avengers. That's what they do. To be avengers who bring wrath on those who practice evil. To protect and to serve. As many police cars say, that's exactly what they're supposed to do from God's point of view. Restrain evil. 
preserve justice, protect the innocent. Civilly speaking, 1 Peter 2.14 says the same thing, that governors, uh, civil servants, God established them to punish those who do evil. Why do we have laws and policemen and military and all this other stuff and guns and bullets and smoke and stuff? Here's why. 1 Timothy 1, 8-10, in part Paul says the law that God gave, the Mosaic law, ceremonial law, civic law, moral law, all of it, was good. The law is good. <clears throat> then he goes on, the law is not laid down or given for just. It's not given for righteous people. It's not given for law obeyers. It is given, the law is given for law breakers. That's why God gave the law. If you have courtesy towards people and your neighbor and people who have nice lawns and you have purpose to never step on their lawn and you always walk on the sidewalk, you don't need a law or a sign that says do not step on the grass. But people make these laws do not step on the grass because there are people who could care less, don't respect other people, and they step on the grass. That's why we have laws. And that's why God gave law first to me. I'm not talking about rules. God did give rules before sin. He gave a rule or a directive. It wasn't a law. It was a rule and a directive to Adam of how to live right because he was still had the potential to be a sinner. And that was don't eat from that tree, but eat from all those trees. A rule, which is a directive on how to live right, is different than a law is specifically given by God to restrain evil and punish evildoers. The law is good. The law is not laid down or given for the just, but for the lawless and to the disobedient. That's why we have laws. Laws are for the ungodly and sinners. Laws are for the unholy and profane. Laws are for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Do we really need laws that say that you can't hit, strike, or kill your mom and dad? Yeah, we do because people do it. They do it in America. They've done it recently. Children murdering their parents. The Menendez brothers, I could go on. Laws are for murderers, the sexually immoral. Men, we need a, we need a law, Proposition 8, to protect God's definition of marriage that He established in Genesis chapter 2. Because it's being undermined in question. That's why we need that law. For 200 years, America didn't need that law. Well, now we do. Laws for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's why we have laws. That's why we have government. Okay, let's go on to the next. Oh, one. this is a major point overall, summary point regarding point number one, which is foundational for everything else. Based on the Bible and the main biblical passages, you need to keep this in mind. File it away. Government was created to be protector primarily. Government, Based on these verses, government was given to be protector of society and individuals. Protect them from evil, preserve justice, preserve liberty, Government is given to be protector. Government is, was not given by God to be provider. Nations, countries, kings, people all throughout history have confused that and have messed everything up. That's happened in America. It's happened in America actually since the beginning, practically almost, but it's getting worse. This is true of every government. If it exists long enough, it's going to go from one balance to the other. The government does not exist by God's intent to be the provider. God makes it very clear that He is the provider. God is the provider, especially for the Christian. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus reminded us as Christians, you should pray. You should pray every day. And one of the parts of your prayer should be, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our daily bread. You are asking God to be your provider. All your resources, everything, your dependence is totally on God, not on the government. Christian, that is a Christian worldview. But it's a biblical principle that is very important. So government was designed by God to be protector, not provider. And if you're a Christian, God first and foremost is your provider. If you are married, your husband is to be the main provider. If you're a child, your father is supposed to be the main provider, humanly speaking, in addition to God. If you are single and able-bodied and of age, you are to be your own provider once you leave the home. Not dependent upon everybody else for your main resources, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, when it says, whoever doesn't work, don't let that person eat. That's what it says. I'm not talking about people who aren't able-bodied. I'm just talking about people who are able-bodied. If you are a widow of age with the right qualifications, according to 1 Timothy 5, your family should be your provider. The church needs to help out and assist as well. Very important. That's, that's a biblical worldview. That is not true from the worldview of America and many other countries. 
As a matter of fact, I was listening on the radio and there was an on-the-street interview on a, a college campus, a secular college campus. I'm not going to tell you which one it was because I don't want to embarrass any of the students and alumni here. So, but here's a college student going through all these classes. This is how they've been educated. This is their response. So the guy with the microphone asked the following questions. Here was their response. Do you think that the government should be responsible for providing you with a job? College student, yes. Do you think the government should be responsible for providing you with a house? College student, yes. Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, etc. Do you think the government should be providing you with a car or the means to get a car? College student, yes. Do you think the government should be uh, responsible for providing food for your and other people who are needy, like welfare, food stamps, all that is the obligation of the government to do so? College student, yes. No hesitation. Is it the responsibility of the government to make sure that 100% of Americans have health care, including you? College student, yes. Is it responsible of the government to provide for you and make sure that you have college education and the funds to have a college education? College student, yes. Do you think it's the responsibility of the government to give you free public schooling for, or give free public schooling for all of our children in America? Yes. Is it the responsibility of the government to provide for and give food, especially breakfast, to all of these kids who go to the free school every morning they go to school? Yes. The responsibility of the government to give these kids a free ride to school where they eat their free breakfast and have a free education? Yes. Is it the responsibility of the government to provide for and ensure your retirement when you are ready to retire and provide for you? Yes. Wow. Cradle to grave. The government is my provider. You know what that is? That is socialism. That's not biblical government. As a matter of fact, you won't find any of those things in the Constitution of the United States of America. I challenge you this week, read the Constitution, which I did yesterday. I was, I was shocked and reminded because I was reading it with this paradigm, a frame of reference. Where does the Constitution say that all of these things should be provided for me by the government? Zippo! It wasn't in there. The emphasis is on protection, the military, and all that. Locally, the country, nationwide. So government is protector, not provider. Very important truth to keep in mind. Okay, let's go on to point number two. And all of these flow out of those. Point number two, well, Christians have dual citizenship. A, our temporal and secondary citizenship is right here on planet Earth. We are citizens of where we're born and where we live. That's by God's design. We are earthly beings. But it is secondary and it's temporal if you're a Christian. Whenever Paul wrote a city, he would say to the Galatians. So he recognized they were citizens of Galatia. The Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen and he even exercised his rights as a Roman citizen when it came time when they arrested him. And he said, I appeal to Caesar. He was exercising his human citizen right under the Roman government. So we can do that. And here in America, we have more rights than any people in the history of the world. We are stewards of those rights and responsibilities. We should take advantage of those rights and responsibilities. We should be good stewards of those rights and responsibilities. Just as Paul did when he said, I appeal to Caesar. Paul recognizing that he was, in a secondary way but in a real way, a earthly citizen, knowing that it was temporary. We are dual citizens. And the second one, and more important, or letter B, is our eternal and primary citizenship is in heaven. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer. Paul says point blank, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship, the eternal one, is in heaven right now. We are just simply sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are passing through. We are here just temporarily. We are like a, a mist, a breath of air. That's it. It's just boom and it's gone. So we're just passing through. Earth is just passing through country as we head to our real eternal home, heaven, if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian and you don't know Jesus Christ and you haven't bowed the knee to Him and confessed your sin to Him and asked Him to be the Lord of your life and to save you, you cannot say with confidence today that your eternal citizenship is in heaven. That's tragic. So embrace Jesus Christ personally for who He is and what He said He did for you, sinner. And you can have the promise that you know that forever heaven is your home. Number three, Jesus' current kingdom is not of this world. It is not of this world. I don't know if you remember, Jesus got arrested, stood before Herod, who was a political official. He said nothing to Herod. He did not defend himself. He didn't give a defense. He was also went before Pilate twice. Pilate was ruling in that area on behalf of Caesar over in Rome. So really, uh, Pilate had all authority there. And Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Because Pilate was questioning him. They say, you're a king. Are you a king? And Jesus said, well, I'm, I'm a king, but not of the kingdom you think. Of a greater reality. I'm a king of the spiritual world. Of heaven. Not of this earth right now. The way you understand it, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' current kingdom is not of this world. Letter A, his mission was spiritual and not political. Jesus' mission was spiritual and not political. And I don't care what the politicians tell you every time it's time to campaign for a political office and they start quoting the Bible and Jesus and likening themselves to Jesus. Insinuating that he was some kind of a political official. He wasn't. Jesus was not a civil servant. He was the suffering servant. Jesus was not a politician. He was a preacher. He was not a politician. He was a pastor. He was. Pastor means shepherd. Don't confuse it. His mission was spiritual, not political. John 19, I referred to it earlier. Jesus told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, as you know it, then my servants would be fighting. And they will in the future, by the way. Jesus' servants will fight for Him. But as it is right now, my kingdom is not of this realm. It is of the spiritual realm. Point B. Jesus was not a political official of this world. As a matter of fact, the world hated Him. B. He was hated and rejected by the world. John 7, 7, Jesus said, the world hates me, categorically. The unbelieving world. The institutions of the world. The established human institutions of the world. They hate Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They arrested Jesus. They executed Jesus. And that's how it's always going to be. There are implications of that for the church as well. Okay, number four. Uh, the church is a spiritual theocracy. The church is a theocracy. Theo means God. Crassy means rule, rule by God. Uh, here we have kind of what we call it a democracy of sorts. Rule by the people, right? And then you've got, you have theocracies on planet Earth today. You have Islam, by its very doctrine, is a theocracy. Islam means submit. And they are seeking, the mandate is to secure political power of the entire world. That's the goal. So Islam, by definition, is a theocracy. The Roman Catholic Church, by definition and its doctrine, is a theocracy. As a matter of fact, the Pope, he's not just a pastor, he's the head of state. The Vatican, that's a country. I don't know if you knew that. Because it's a theocracy. And even in the Catholic doctrines, the Pope bows the knee to no other governing authority whatsoever. So there are theocracies on earth. They're not legitimate from a biblical point of view. But the church is a theocracy. But right now it's not an earthly theocracy. It is a spiritual theocracy. Dominating, concerned with the spiritual realm at this point. Now regarding theocracies, letter A, Israel was a legitimate earthly theocracy. I said Islam was a theocracy, but not a legitimate one. There was a legitimate earthly theocracy. It was the nation of Israel that God started. And He started it with Abraham. And He told Abraham in Genesis 12 that I will make you a nation. That is a theocracy. Ruled by God, creating a nation. God was going to create a theocracy, a religious nation to rule on His behalf. I will make you a nation, Abraham. You need at least four minimum ingredients for a nation. What are they? You need a leader, which would be God. You need laity, that's people to rule over. You need laws, which God gave them through Moses. And you need land. And He gave them the promised land. That's the definition of a basic elements of a nation. And God gave it all. So Israel was a legitimate nation from the time of Abraham when it began and then until the time of Christ, or really when they went into exile, the time of Christ, they are no longer a theocracy anymore recognized by God, but they will be re-recognized in the future according to Romans 9-11 through 11 in the book of Revelation. So, But they're not a theocracy right now. B, America is not a theocracy. At least it's not a legitimate one. Some people would like to make America a Christian theocracy, but that's not what the Bible says should happen. It's not a theocracy, shouldn't be. C, today the church is the only Christian nation. There is a Christian nation on planet Earth and it's not America, it's not... Pick a nation. I mean, Christians who have good intentions say that America is a Christian nation or used to be a Christian nation. I understand what they're saying, but technically that's not true. It never was a Christian nation. Because the Bible says there's only one nation, a Christian nation, that is the church. Because if you're going to say that America was a Christian nation, it'd be hard for me to believe that you can't count any other 
nation a, a Christian nation? Why, why is it just America? Why can't the Philippines, that has an amazing Christian revival for the last three decades, why can't we call that a Christian nation? How many Christians do you need in a nation to make it a Christian nation? What, what defines and constitutes a Christian nation? Very hard to do, but the Bible is clear about what nation exists today. That is the nation of the church. He said that in the book of Peter. You are a holy nation, a holy people. Because by all definitions, uh, the church constitutes a nation. Because it has a leader, that's Jesus, right? It has laity, people, that's believers. It has laws, that's the Bible. It has land, the eternal one in heaven, the one on earth in the millennium. D. The next earthly theocracy on earth will be during the tribulation and the millennium. Tribulation, as far as we can tell from the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, will be about seven years, and it's seven real years, seven literal years, according to the book of Daniel, real years. All 480 years leading up to that were literal, so the last seven got to be literal too. That's the tribulation. That's future. Israel will be reinstated during the tribulation. They will be God's people. God will protect them in a special way according to the book of Revelation and many Old Testament books. Uh, so the theocracy of Israel will be reinstated. All Israel will be saved according to Romans chapter 11. And then also during the millennium, we will have a theocracy like you've never known in the history of the world. Because guess who's going to be president? Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. President Jesus coming down. No election. Self-assumed rule. And Jesus will reign on the earth. And I'm going to be in His cabinet. I don't know if you knew that. It's already been decided. King, Prince Clifford, according to the book of Revelation, according to the book of Daniel, the saints will rule with Christ on earth. Revelation 5.10, Revelation 2, Revelation 3. Not only that, Jesus is going to let me sit on His throne. King Jesus. Probably to polish the uh, sides and so on and so forth. But that's alright. You might privilege to do so. The millennium, it is literal. It is 1,000 years. It is literal. On earth. That's our destiny. That's what the Bible says. It's amazing. That is the culmination of highlight. That's where history is going. Jesus will reign in glory. Number five, we are living in the times of the Gentiles. Well, then why is, why is everything all messed up? You look at world history. You look at American history. We got trial. You look at nations of the world right now. All the dictators that rule in all kinds of countries right now. Oppressing the people. What is going on? Well, here's what's going on. Number five, we are living in the times of the Gentiles. We are living in the times of the Gentiles. This is huge. But it was predicted in Deuteronomy 28 when God told Israel, right now, Israel, I am making you the head of all the nations. The head and not the tail. If you continue to obey Me, you will remain the head. If you disobey for a prolonged period of time to a certain degree, I will demote you and raise up the nations around you, the, the Gentiles, and they will become the head and not the tail, and you will become the tail. That happened, that was fulfilled when in Babylon, 800 years later, after God said that in Deuteronomy 28, when Nebuchadnezzar the pagan came in and sacked Jerusalem, wiped out Israel, took captive thousands of Jews, and they were there for 70 years, and Israel's never been the same since. And from that time on, the Gentiles have been ruling, have been the dominating power and forces on planet Earth since the time of Nebuchadnezzar. You can read it in the book of Daniel. And ever since then, we have been under the rule and domination of Gentiles. The reign of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles. The epics of the Gentiles. Of Gentile rule. That is exactly what Jesus was referring to when He was talking about this. This is an eschatological context. Talking about Daniel and what's going on right now and how Israel and the Jews and the church will be subjugated by unbelieving pagan Gentile nations and kings all throughout history until... The end of the times of the Gentiles. But right now, you and I, we live in the times of the Gentiles still. World, the world over, all throughout history, since the time of Nebuchadnezzar, world power has been in the hand of pagans and unbelievers. And even those who have said they were Christians are not operating 100% on biblical principles. At least there is no government or law. Even the United States Constitution was influenced greatly by Christian men in that day, but it also got influenced by unbelievers, deists, and even atheists like John Locke had a tremendous influence. Even Plato and his thoughts trickled in there as well. So we are living in the times of the Gentiles. And Jesus said this about the times of the Gentiles, Luke 21. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, when, is, when are the gen, times of the Gentiles over? It is when Jesus returns again. Revelation chapter 20. Jesus will put an end to the times of the Gentiles. There are those Christians 
who have said like Hal Lindsey in his book and writings and Dave Hunt said that the times of the Gentiles ended in 1967 when Israel won the Six-Day War. That's not true. Because they've been dominated, hated, minimalized even since then. So we're in the times of the Gentiles. As a result, uh, it's bad news really for Jews and, un- and believers for the most part, universally speaking. Um, so here's some points about that. Living under the times of the Gentiles. Letter A, earthly governments will always be hostile toward the church and believers. And you can throw the Jews in there as well. And that's been true all throughout history. Earthly governments, because they're ruled, for the most part, worldwide by Gentiles, pagans, unbelievers, not according to God's Word. They will always be hostile, one way or another, towards Christians, the church, and Jews. Letter B, Jesus and Paul lived under corrupt pagan political leaders. They lived during and under the times of the Gentiles. Jesus even said that. And Jesus didn't attempt to overthrow the government at that time. He will when He returns the second time. Let her see the progress of history is toward rebellion. The times of the Gentiles is going to continue. As a matter of fact, it's going to get worse. It's going to proliferate. We know that from Scripture. It's very clear. The church is going to undergo even more persecution. There are churches right now being persecuted all over the world. Christians are even losing their life for their faith that we don't even know about. It's sad. Because we are under the dominion of the times of the Gentiles. And then letter D, uh, true change happens on an individual basis for the Christian, not on a corporate or institutional one. Instead of spending all my time, energy, and money trying to Christianize a pagan society ruled by the Gentiles, you could probably have a greater impact praying for your local mayor, local governor, President of the United States, senators on an individual basis and let God work on their hearts on an individual basis. Imagine what a transformation that would have. It would change an entire country of just one person got saved who was in an influential position of authority. Nebuchadnezzar, case in point. Murderer, thug, brutal, universal power, pagan, idolater. Daniel ministered to him, witnessed to him, prayed for him three times a day. God humbled him, saved Nebuchadnezzar. You can read it in Daniel chapter 4. Amazing. So a true change happens on an individual basis, not a corporate or institutional one. And then finally, number six, this is all practical application. So what should I be doing as a Christian? What should my attitude be towards government and all these realities? Here's just a flurry and I'm going to go through these. Here we go. Okay, Christian, what should we do? Letter A, submit. Submit. Pay the bridge toll fee, McManus. But it's going up to $5 in January. Pay it anyway. All right. B, be salt and light. And if you do, you'll be a witness for Christ in the world. C, pay your taxes. Ouch, that hurts. Don't cheat on your taxes. Be honest. God knows. He's the, he's the tax man. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Pay your taxes. D, don't revile, but respect in your words and your mouth. I don't care who the president is. You shouldn't be reviling and mocking him in a sarcastic, demeaning way. I remember when President Clinton became president and they were selling these, you know, doormats for $5 with his face on it. Ha, 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 ha. Well, that shouldn't be in the porch of a Christian. And if it's President Bush, it shouldn't be on the porch of a Christian either. No reviling. That's ungodly. I'm not saying accept everything that they do or believe either. If it goes against biblical truth. But just don't revile in an ungodly manner. You can read that in Titus 3. E, pray for peace and freedom. It's the main thing you pray for. Because God knows we live under times of the Gentiles and a lot of corrupt leaders and laws. And so if you have peace and you have freedom, if you can worship freely, read your Bible freely, praise the Lord. That's all you want. That's really all you should ask for and expect from your government. You've got it better than most people in the history of the world. F, pray for salvation of specific leaders. That is the will of God, according to 1 Timothy 2. I can't stand this politician. Boy, they're corrupt. Okay, then pray that God would humble them and bring them to repentance the way He did with Nebuchadnezzar. G, pray for God's righteousness to be done. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You don't have to roll over like a doormat in front of sin and unrighteousness. That isn't what God is saying. Pray for righteousness. Be an example of righteousness. Speak out for righteousness in legitimate manners as you can. H, preach the Gospel. That's the greatest force in the world. 
changes eternal destinies. Preach the Gospel. I call sinners to repentance. Again, you don't just roll over like a doormat. John the Baptist publicly stuck his finger in the face of Herod, who was a political official, called him to repentance and called him an adulterer. Repent! Got his head cut off for it too. Call sinners to repentance. Acts 17.30 is calling, God is calling everyone to repent. Jay, live godly, quietly and peacefully. Christians should be quiet, civil, publicly and in society, not creating havoc and rebellion. Okay, expect persecution and suffering. You can't get around it, Christian. If you're not experiencing persecution and suffering of some sort, are you a Christian? This is guaranteed. This is a promise from Scripture. You will suffer as a Christian. L, we are to be responsible stewards with our rights and liberties. And like I said, America has more rights and privileges of the people, politically speaking, than any nation in the history of the world. We are blessed by God in that regard. Be a good steward. Be a faithful steward. Be an active, involved steward. And then finally, M, put, uh, this is not up there, but I want to close with this. Put your hope in God, Christian, not in government or any man or any political official or any human wisdom whatsoever. Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5, Your faith, Christian, should not rest on man's wisdom, but on the power of God. Amen to that? Amen. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank You for this morning and the opportunity of the saints to gather here in this place, but also around the world. And that is an exciting prospect, Lord. You have Your children. You have the people of God in every nation of the world. So I thank You for Your church, the body of Christ. God, thank You for the treasure of Your Word that helps guide us in our thinking, even living practically from day to day on how we're supposed to interact with the government and the local police officer and our tax man and so many other implications. God, help us to employ all these practical things You command of us, expect of us, and even empower us to do so that we might be salt and light in the world, representing You well, all for Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.